hi everyone, I'm Christine and I'll be moderating today's uh, session. Thank you so much for taking the time, taking the hour to join us and to learn about human trafficking, especially in the lens of you know, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Today, I have a couple of wonderful speakers who are so passionate about helping survivors in this sector. And I'm so glad that you have joined us to learn and to join in the efforts to best serve this particular community members. And I wanted to introduce uh, Annalisa and Andrea to you. Um, you know, Annalisa and Andrea, I want you to be able to, you know, greet everyone from, from your own words and just uh, introduce yourselves in a way um, that helps them to understand who you are, where you're coming from and why you're uh, so passionate about this work. So let's start with Annalisa. Um, Annalisa, I know you're a Trojan, you're a uh, professor over there and you've just been a spearheading um, you know, Asian American woman who wants to raise awareness and also you know, take those tangible steps to help um, those who are affected by human trafficking. So why don't you um, go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone. Um, my name is uh, Dr. Annalisa Enrile. I am a professor at the USC Suzanne Dvorak School of Social Work across the freeway from you um, at USC, but I'm actually a three-degree Bruin, and so I got my bachelor's, MSW, and PhD in social welfare, not only from UCLA, but also with a mentor who was, at the time, one of only... I would say maybe less than 10 uh, Filipina American PhDs um, in the country and so have always um, been so grateful uh, for that experience. Um, UCLA has a really robust um, partnership between social welfare and Asian American studies and um, so this is really even as an undergrad where I kind of cut my activism teeth and um, in 1993 went to, um, oh, I'm saying I'm a lot, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I uh, went to a conference in Santa Barbara on gender violence and Filipino Americans um, and Filipinas in the diaspora. And I heard about a situation that was then called labor exploitation and mail order brides you know, two different kinds of things and would soon be called trafficking. And that's really where I started my work in human trafficking and slavery um, and have been doing that work in all sorts of ways um, ever since. Um, my favorite is always um, on the front lines. I'm a community organizer and activist at heart. Um, but about a couple of years ago, I published a book called uh, freedom's journey and have has been such a great experience uh, earlier we were talking about storytelling when we were preparing for this meeting and and i'm i think that's the best part that i could share with you today so thank you so much for having me here awesome Diego bruin i love <laughs> learning that part about you as well as just everything else you're such a trailblazer in what you do especially in the asian american community so thank you for what you do and thanks Andrea christine yeah, you are also, I mean, and Andrea told me during our pre-session when we were preparing for this meeting for you uh, that she actually uh, knew Annalisa because she took her class. And so, yeah, Andrea, welcome and, and tell me a little more about yourself so everyone else can learn. Yeah, thank you, everyone. It's nice seeing everyone here. And yeah, I was an undergrad, master's student of social work in adult and healthy aging at USC. So the other side of town, go Trojans, whoever, if there's ever a Trojan here. 
Um, and I didn't really learn about human trafficking. It wasn't until I was working at a nonprofit organization called Special Service for Groups after I got my MSW. That's where I really experienced um, Filipino labor trafficking victims um, coming in for psychotherapy because I, I was able to build partnerships with the Filipino community where we're working with Filipino Worker Center where the trafficking victims would come in to get financial support and legal support. And then they would come to me. They got connected to me through psychotherapy because I am um, one of the only Tagalog speaking clinician um, at my clinic back then. Um, we were in LA and also um, in Cerritos and also El Monte. So when I was working at that agency for three years, that's when I saw bulk of labor trafficking victims. And it was just really nice um, getting to work with my community um, on, on Filipinos. So there's just that little like, uh, well, my heart's for them. Um, so that's where I really developed the passion um, for it. So and, and now I'm a psychotherapist, I have my own private practice, um, where I still do a lot of work and share my experiences um, with working with labor trafficking victims um, all over the world. So yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I'll wrap up with, with a little bit of introduction of myself. I'm actually a broadcast journalist. I had no um, real personal connection to human trafficking or or really, you know, anything in this area until I became a domestic violence and sexual assault survivor. And when that happened, it just opened my eyes to a whole different world, you know, that I only have objectively tried to cover as a news reporter and and when I became a survivor myself of, of crimes that intersect in some ways with human trafficking um, that's when I realized how important it was to raise awareness about this especially among Asian communities and I currently work um, statewide with law enforcement on training detectives new detectives to become culturally responsive when helping victims of crime and I hope a part of this uh, session helps you to open your eyes to this this specific sector of Asian Americans and, and when it comes to human trafficking. And so, you know, some of the objectives I wanted to cover today, you know, really is about you wrapping your minds around what is human trafficking, especially in the lens of AAPI communities, identifying some causes and factors, diving into some stories, because these two individuals are amazing storytellers, and I want them to be able to share their stories with you. Um, and then exploring trauma from AAPI perspectives, you know, even as a survivor myself of DV and SA, um, there are certain things I had to learn from a counselor, a therapist that I didn't want to go to because it was taboo. And that's one of the things we can talk about as well. Um, you know, why are we so resistant to getting help when it comes to trying to recover from something that happened to us that was so traumatic? Um, and then also cultural responsiveness being key, right? Like how can we identify certain things about certain cultures, especially Asian cultures, and how can we help? So, you know, let's, let's start off by defining human trafficking. Um, you know, Andrea and Annalisa, can you share a little bit about what you've learned, what human trafficking is, and what you want the audience today to take away? I'll let either of you start. Yeah, so human trafficking is really the recruitment, transportation, transfer, um, harboring uh, or the receipt of people through force, um, fraud, um, with really the aim of exploiting them for profit. Men, women, children of all ages and all backgrounds can become victims of this crime. And it, and it occurs all over the world. Um, they use like violence or fraudulent um, employee like agencies. Like a lot of my client came from 
employment agencies. Um, and they make fake promises, um, they promise education, they promise opportunities to really trick and coerce their, their victims. I, I wanna also say, um, you know, on the other side of the spectrum too, uh, the way that we think about coercion is really um, is really tricky in in this space. Um, in addition to the examples that Andrea gave, like there's also when we talk about sex trafficking, like the number one way that victims are tricked is through love. I mean, that sucks, um, but they really believe, you know, this person who turns out to be a perpetrator and an exploiter, you know, a pimp or a trafficker is like in love with them and has vested interest in them and, and convinces them, right? Um, and so I think that that's important. And then also like when we talk about labor trafficking, a lot of people leave because, you know, uh, Warthon Shire, who's one of my favorite poets, she says, don't leave their kind unless, you know, their kind is on fire. Like people don't choose to leave unless they have absolutely no other way to survive. And, um, you know, a lot of times when we hear victim blaming, um, they say, well, they didn't have to leave the country. Like they didn't have to put themselves in a vulnerable position, but actually, you know, and, and we could get into it later, but there's so many reasons why that's wrong. And yes, they did have to leave. It was the only way. Yeah, and really also, I think for my labor trafficking victims, there were really no jobs available. There's no high paying jobs available to where they were. So that's why they had yeah. to go seek out this opportunity. They, they thought it was wonderful, but in reality, it wasn't. Yeah, and that kind of leads into, you know, the causes and factors of human trafficking, right? Like, why does this happen? You know, Andrea, you mentioned that there are no better opportunities where they're coming from and that that is part of it. So money, um, you know, let's also talk about, you know, socioeconomic and, and, and gender roles that play into this whole thing of, of why human trafficking is happening. And, and, you know, can you also give us an idea of just how common it is? Because until I started working with the detectives, I had no idea. This is one of the fastest growing crimes, right? Like not just in the US, but in the world. And it's, 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 I think it's very eye-opening for people to learn about that aspect as well. Um, you know, the scope of human trafficking, it's 40.3 million people around the world at any, you know, at any given time. And this actually is a statistic that was agreed upon by different agencies because we didn't know, like, right, human trafficking thrives in the darkness. And there's all sorts of ambiguity. Like, is this trafficking? Is this trafficking? What is this called? Um, and so the numbers were anywhere from like, 10 million to 110 million, you know, and, and there was, you know, so finally in 2016, the International Labor Organization, the UN, other organizations like got together and said, okay, we need to come up with a number that is agreed upon and that kind of makes sense. Um, you know, being a researcher and an academic and, and speaking to all of you students, I hope that you are hearing me say like, they just agreed upon a number. Like, actually, we don't holy no, this is just kind of, we think it's around this ballpark. But what we do know is that this industry, this trafficking, you know, industry uh, brings in about $150 billion a year in profit. And so when you talk about like motivation, and we say like poverty drives people to put themselves in, you know, vulnerable situations, at the other end, the reason why it's such an intractable problem is that the people that are benefiting from it, they are not going to let go of, you know, these ways in which they're making super profits off the body and labor of people. 
Yeah, and also like according to like the Polaris project, there's only like 3K um, documented survivors, 27% are identified as Asian Pacific Islander and 34% is Latino. So we're second, the API community second to the Latino. And the other data that I have here is from the National Human Trafficking Hotline. This was a 2020 report um, in terms of the API community. Um, the top one is China, the Philippines, India, Vietnam, and Taiwan. So this is the data where, where everything is respectively. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I guess I'll, I'll throw in an instance of, so every quarter when I work with my um, California law enforcement, um, I'm working off of a scenario and part of what I do is acting out a scenario where I am a human trafficking victim. Um, and my scenario is based on real life women in California where this happens to very often. And it's written by a detective who has to endure this type of scenario again and again and again. So I'm a 30 something year old old woman from South Korea who has a friend who came to LA to work, who said she came to work at a restaurant. She makes a, a good living making tips. And she told me I can do the same. And so I come to LA um, with false promises, like you have mentioned, that you know I would have employment here that would provide much better financial situation than I have back home. Well, as soon as I come, though, I get picked up by someone else, a guy who's my manager, and he takes my passport, he takes my belongings, he takes me mm -hmm. to a condo where he tells me the situation is much different, and I have to pay him back, which is also something you've mentioned. And it takes, I don't know how long it's going to take. I've only been there a couple of months when I get sexually assaulted at a bar. And I have to um, either decide whether or not I want to reach out to law enforcement for help or go back to my situation. And so when I read this, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so far fetched. You know, like I couldn't believe it. But when I did this scenario the first time in Sunnyvale, a San Jose police detective came to me and said, this is what I deal with every weekend, almost every weekend. And it just blew my mind. So can you tell me about the, the traffickers themselves like and and even to hear from Annalisa today about you know there are people that that say they're in love with you or there's something personal involved that helps you to kind of get into the situation in a way that you know it's it's more relatable right than than what you would have initially thought can you tell me about these traffickers who are they so maybe I could talk a little bit about sex trafficking and then Andrea you could talk about labor trafficking um, because I think there's so many pieces especially to the labor trafficking that Andrea could speak to this kind of uh, so first of all as social workers right our perspective is really a systems perspective so we look at you know what are all of these different systems that are holding this problem in place and I think that you know um, just like there's not one type of victim there is not unfortunately a profile um, on one type of trafficker or, or perpetrator um, but you know we are seeing like different trends and some of the trends that we are seeing particularly in sex trafficking is this use of um, you know relationship building in, in the literature they call it Romeo pimping there used to be two types of pimping Romeo pimping and gorilla pimping gorilla pimping is like pure force you know that stereotype that we see in Hollywood of like a girl getting kidnapped and thrown in the back of the car and raped um, Romeo pimping is 
there is a little bit more finesse and a lot less immediate physical violence. Now, don't get me wrong. Eventually, there will be physical violence. This person is going to be raped and will be trafficked. And I, I know that that's a very triggering word. And, you know, and I apologize for it. I hope that, you know, everybody in this webinar will take the time that they need if they if they need to step out. But the reason that I use it very specifically is that I don't ever want it to be confused and to think that the situation is not sexual assault, right? I think that a lot of times we want to say, but at a certain point, was it, you know, okay? I mean, it's never okay. And part of that is, you know, when we talk about the girls, mainly girls, a growing number now of um, uh, trans uh, youth and LGBT youth that um, are also being trafficked, um, the average age in the United States is 14. And it's much lower in developing countries. Um, in the Philippines, the average age, I think, is something like nine. And that's because um, of different crazy fallacies like the virgin cure and, and ideas, which is, you know, we could go into that later if you want. But but here, I think, you know, this idea of the Romeo pimp is like where they, you know, will befriend or romance. And, you know, the internet is not our friend in this situation. Um, young people, and they get, you know, will get them involved. Um, and then they'll say, you know, hey, baby, turn this trick for me. We need this. Or they'll say, you know, it's, we just need some money or they'll say, this is what I, you know, like, no, this is what it's, what's not love. This is what you're going to do. And I've talked to so many girls, like just right on the blade in Los Angeles, the blade is where you see like a lot of, um, a lot of girl, young girls that are trafficked and we're coming up on graduation. So, you know, USC's graduation is next week. And I guarantee you, it already looks like in and out if you go south on Figueroa and, um, you know, with lines of cars. And it's just, it boggles my mind, right? Like when you, I talked to a 15 year old last year who said, well, I thought he was my boyfriend. We, you know, we met online and then he, I lived in Santa Barbara and there's like a lot of deep shame for a lot of these girls. One, because they're like, I got tricked, but also in addition to that shame, there's a lot of genuine feeling. And I think that that is also so confusing, especially when you're young, you know, we know physiologically our brains are not formed until we're 25. <laughs> and so there's so much confusion there. Um, and it's very, very difficult to leave because again, remember at the, the beginning of what I was saying, I said, I promise you there will be physical violence because that's at the end of the day, that's also where there, this other person, this perpetrator, this trafficker, they have all the power. And so they they will always you know, use that type of physical violence if the co this other emotional coercion and blackmail and gaslighting doesn't work. Thank you for that. And yeah, great reminder too. Um, I know that in the beginning of the session, um, it, it was noted uh, that that there may be some triggers. So if there's any time that you need to just take a step back and, and leave the room and come back later or just mute us for a little bit, that's absolutely fine. I think that is the most healthy thing you can do, um, especially, you know, if you're in this in this world of, of, of um, you know, helping these survivors. Andrea, is there something else that you wanted to add before uh, we go on to survivor stories? Because I want to make sure that 
you know, everyone gets to hear a, a specific story of something that, that you've worked on. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe put a context here too. In the Philippines, um, there's this term called overseas Filipino workers. So it's very common. There's a lot of Filipinos going abroad to England, Italy um, to work um, because, again, they couldn't there's not a has as high paying in the Philippines, or there's kind of also discrimination. If they're older, it's harder for them to get a job in the Philippines. And sometimes even looks um, in the Philippines, if, if you're not that good looking, you might not get a job. Yeah. Um, and so for, for most of my clients, they go to the Manila, to Manila or the main town square. And this is where these agencies uh, have their hubs of like, oh, we promise you full-time work in America. You'll be able to come back to the Philippines. You'll be able to provide for your family. Then maybe on, later on, you can petition your family to come with you. So they're like, oh, yes, that's awesome. This is my ticket to help my family to support their education. And, and for, for some of my clients, too, they, they gather their friends um, who are um, we're also looking for jobs like, hey, I just applied for this position. Why don't we go in? Um, and, and some of these traffickers, too, they target like those rural communities um, in the Philippines. Um, there's the Igorots, which is like um, an indigenous tribe in the Philippines. And, and they're also fa facing discrimination and oppression. People make fun of them because they live in the mountains. Um, so there's that aspect, too. So, so once everything gets processed, the papers, they finally come here to America. And, and I think with the Filipinos too, there's this, I guess, idealization. It's like, and maybe the whole world too, it's like the United States, it's definitely the better life. So they idealize it, that this is really my ticket. And then they come here, some of them do have jobs, but some of them, they, they, they don't have work and, and they're stuck there. And, and, and to this point, too, they don't know during that point that it's already labor trafficking. They, they, they won't even know that that's something till later on in, in, in our work together. Um, so, so here they are. And they have a lot of debt, too. Come think of it. Like, okay, I got to pay my debt. debt. I got to work. Even though these traffickers are threatening me. Um, they're yelling at me, they're overworking me, there's so much debt that, that I have to pay because some of them borrowed money um, from, from relatives or from, I guess, loan sharks that they had to pay. So, get, so they just get stuck working there, working long hours. Sometimes people even have to call 911 because of dehydration, really that TARDIS would work. And some of them to work in remote places. So it's really hard to escape. You have to take like a bus or they would pick them up and take them to the hotel for them to work. Um, so these are just the, some of the things that they've encountered. And let's dive more into that. I mean, um, I want to spend a, a good chunk of this time just talking about survivor stories, real life scenarios that, that these two um, ladies have been dealing with and, and have been helping people through. So um, can you share some real life scenarios, especially from the Asian American or Pacific Islander survivors and, and, you know, just help them to understand what it looks like today and what an actual situation was where you were able to, to get involved and, and help. You see clients all the time, Andrea, you start and then I'll go. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. So with the client's part, um, 
so I think most of the point of entry for people to get to get um, help is through friends and family, and, and sometimes too with um, with the law enforcement too. Um, with majority of my clients, they were really able to get resources through the, the Filipino Workers Center. They got connected there and they got to know um, services there and, and, and they would help them financially. And then they would connect them to, to get legal support because some of them didn't even know that they could apply for like that T visa to get like permanent status here or that, that okay to, to work here. Um, so they would get that support there. And then I also worked with FASG, which is a Filipino American service group. And they would also get um, um, a support group there. They had a support groups for human trafficking survivors. And here, here was I doing psychotherapy. So it was a really nice approach of us working together, different agencies, really getting that full spectrum of holistic care with the clients. And, and I think with a lot of these clients too, some of them have been here for like 10 years. Um, and it's been like 10 years since they saw a doctor. So I think that's crucial to getting them connected to healthcare providers. So I connected them with Asian Pacific Healthcare Venture um, to get their all their medical check. And, it would, and I would do the, the psychotherapy um, technique with them. Um, most of these clients that are coming in, in the beginning, there's a lot of, really a lot of depression, just really the heaviness in their chest, a lot of tears, a lot of unprocessed trauma. Um, that we would have to deal with. And the one thing that the main issue that I saw commonly was sleep, a lot of sleep issues. Um, so I would talk to them about sleep hygiene and sometimes the doctor would prescribe um, medication to help with their sleep and depression too. Um, and in my work with them too, I use this um, seeking safety. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard, um, it's an evidence-based um, treatment. Um, really psychoeducation about um, trauma, what it is, and really developing coping tools um, to deal with flashbacks, nightmares, um, depression, um, and also to help kind of regrain their trust too. Because a lot of these people, they're really scared to trust people because they betray them, they've hurt them. Um, I, I know with one of my clients before going into to Filipino Workers Center, he really had to like walk around um, the agency just to make sure that he felt safe, that it didn't look suspicious before, before he, he came in and asked for help. Um, so, and it's really looking into their, their social circles too. Um, I, I also use um, interpersonal therapy with them, which is kind of doing an interpersonal inventory of their, their close um, circle. Like who are the ones that are really close to them? like maybe your best friends, your friends and your acquaintances kind of evaluating all these different supports that they can have or, or want to have. Um, Cause it's gonna be, I mean, a process for them applying for, for, for visa. So it's really important that they have that support with them and connecting them to the community. Um, I have a client that he loves going to the gym and that's where he built his community there. Uh, or I have, a, I have a client too that she likes gardening. So really trying to remind them of things that they used to enjoy doing. Um, and, and also talking to them about like psychotherapy because some of them don't know what therapy is. There's still a lot of stigma 
um, and, and also setting boundaries with them. Because when they come in, sometimes they usually have that expectation. I need that treatment letter from you, Andrea, as part of my case for my visa application. And part of me as a clinician is that setting that boundary that I, I'll see you, but I can't guarantee that your visa will be approved. Um, and so just, just laying on that. I'll have an Annalisa. I feel like I talk too much. <laughs> but yeah. All right. So, so put in the chat um, um, where you think the most kind of, where you think the most trafficking happens in the API community when we're talking about labor trafficking? What industries? If you're in the audience, just just kind of type that in so we could all see where you think that's where you th where is that happening or where does the media even say that it's happening if you don't have any idea. Great. All right, massage parlors. Absolutely. I thought I would get like a whole bunch of massage parlors labor. Um, yeah, not a lot in hospitals, although there is, you know, some labor exploitation with caregivers. Um, absolutely. So domestic support, these, so again, like these places where nobody has a lot of regulation and a lot of it is happening like in private, you know, spaces that we um, really can't monitor. Um, and, you know, this whole notion, number one, like uh, when, when people put, uh, or, you know, this whole notion about massage parlors, that's been like on the news lately and it comes up now and again. Um, there's this statistic that I heard that always has stayed with me and, and in fact has stayed with me so much that I check to make sure it's true every year and it remains true. In the United States, there are more massage parlors than Starbucks. There are more of these kinds of sketchy, you know, types of places. And um, I know that you wanted me to share a survivor story, but I'm actually going to share an organizer story because I think this is so um, interesting. There is an organizer who works in massage parlors um, almost exclusively. And how she gets in is she supposedly provides free English lessons. Um, and this is her way of getting in to be able to tell most, again, mostly women what their rights are. And, um, and again, you know, the demographics might change because, you know, in massage parlors, there's both men and women that are employed, but, you know, to let them know what their, their rights are as workers and that, you know, your boss shouldn't be able to take away your, um, you know, your boss shouldn't be able to take away your passport and, and things like that. And so it's really important, um, I think, to be creative, like when we're trying to fight trafficking and to also, you know, know what to look for. Um, I think that that's a really big thing. It's really hard. Also, I think the big battle that we have in our community is not just like the internal shame that we were talking about, like of, of victims trying to get help, but also the um, idea that this is not any of our business, right? And so in a lot of ways, API culture is very collectivist. We all, you know, have this idea that we should help each other. Um, you know, in the Philippines, we call it Kapwa Filipino, right? We want to help our, our brothers and sisters, our family, our community, um, but also we kind of is like, that's their family, that's private. It's a weird contradiction. 
Um, and so I think like when I've talked to victims before and, you know, I wanted Andrea to go first because I think as a social service provider, she does it the right way. Um, as a grassroots community organizer, I've like definitely had to be checked on my own boundaries. I've had victims call me like in the middle of the night and are like, we're running away. Should we run to your house? And I'm like, uh, okay. You know, because they're scared of, they're scared of, um, Homeland Security and, you know, Customs and Border Patrol and, and, and ICE. Um, and so there's different like areas where you kind of have to troubleshoot from, you know, what is their most important basic need um, and then move up, you know, from there. And Andrea's told you some of them, which is, you know, first they need to like secure their safety. Then the second thing that they want to secure is their legal status. And then the third thing is a job. And then, you know, so it takes quite a while before they get to the part where they look at a provider like Andrea and say like, okay, now like take care of my trauma. And so that's why you have like all of this, you know, um, unresolved, unpacked, deep trauma um, that's never been dealt with. Um, and, and all those things that they, you know, had to secure before they get there are in constant flux. So they're still constantly trying to secure that. Um, I think like on the labor trafficking side, one of the most humbling and real experiences that I ever had um, was that I got a call from DHS and this was like in the late nineties. So they don't do this anymore, thank God. But they called me and they said basically like, hey, if you don't pick up this woman who said she was labor trafficked, we're gonna deport her um, because we don't have an agency to release her to. And at that time in the late nineties, there was no agency uh, that was specifically doing trafficking work that was on you know their radar. So I like got in my car and picked her up, <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. And, um, you know, this, and this woman came, she was a domestic worker. She had had all her papers taken away and had been trafficked by actually, by a lawyer and was actually recruited in the Philippines by another Filipina. And so, you know, that idea of trust that Andrea brought up and that trust being broken, it's so deep because you don't know like who's on your side and who's your enemy. Um, and I remember like getting her settled, like, you know, calling Filipino Worker Center to say like, hey, in the morning I'm coming by and, and you know, and, and and we have, I think, a labor trafficking victim. Uh, but that night, you know, just kind of getting her settled in my guest room. And she asked me for lotion. Her hands were like super, super chapped and raw. And I said, yeah, I mean, here's lotion. I, I mean, I can't tell you ashamedly how many bottles of lotion I have in my house. And, you know, she came back and she said, thank you so much for the lotion and was handing me a $20 bill. And I said, what what is this for and she said because for the lotion and then I said no 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 that I'm just giving you that lotion why are you giving me twenty dollars and she had in her pocket a very well-worn list like one you could tell she had looked at again and again and it was a list of items that her traffickers had given her to explain how much everything she used in the home cost. And that really speaks to that debt bondage that Andrea was talking about. She, be, it, I mean, it was like toilet paper for $10 a roll, lotion for $20 a roll, like um, a, a, a bar of soap for, you know, $30. I mean, like these basic needs that, you know, 
um, that she had no idea about because she was never allowed to leave um, the the home where she was being where she was trafficked. Um, and for me, it made it so real because it was like this is yeah. How could you? How could you ever um, understand like how to get out of this mountain of debt? Even before you could understand, wait, I'm being trafficked because it's such a transactional framework you know that you think well okay it's work i i have gotten these goods you know i don't know um and and i the last thing i want to say too is i don't think we can underplay or or ever you know downplay sorry the role of colonial mentality and i think that that really drives you know this idea of why it's going to be so good in america or canada or europe or the middle east and you know and and how we'll be treated and why it's such a shock right when workers get there because it isn't um, and so it's so important to tell the truth around what's really happening in these countries. I think that's such a strong part of decolonization. Um, you know, we talk a lot about now in racial justice, how we need to decolonize. And I think that's one of the key things that we have to do is we have to stop saying America is so great when we write back home. Um, people are writing back home. You know, I was giving you the numbers earlier. In the Philippines alone, and I think the numbers for Vietnam are pretty close to this, $130 billion. That is the country's GDP is being held aloft by remittances that are sent back from their overseas contract workers. Wow, those are, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to just keep learning about just how big of an impact this human trafficking has on our world. And, and absolutely, I mean, it's, you've touched on a lot of what we're going to talk about next, which is about trauma and how it affects survivors. And it seems like, like what Annalisa said about trauma being like the second hand of, okay, now you deal with my trauma after I deal with all of these emergency situations that I need to deal with first. Andrea, during your practice, how have you been able to break through barriers of letting people know like, yes, like I will help you with these things that you prioritize, but it is just as important to talk about your trauma and talk about getting you well from the inside so that you can have a long-term success plan rather than just this emergency, you know, like let's figure this step one, two out. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with dealing with survivors and, and helping them to understand this concept of therapy and this concept of acknowledging that they're overcoming trauma? Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think the key thing, especially when meeting a survivor is really building that report in the beginning. Um, I usually start with, oh, I'm, I'm Filipino. I'm curious, where are you from? To start really developing that trust and also explaining to them like that confidentiality, like whatever you say here, what we'll say in this room, um, reminding them of like my manda mandated reporting, if there's any child abuse, elder abuse, um, and, and, and that. So just building that safe space for them, giving that, that space for them to, to say whatever is on their mind. And really telling them, no, like, okay, this is therapy. We're going to meet once a week. If, if you're able to, um, if, if you if you can't, then then just let me know. Um, and, and going from there and then asking them to like, okay, how, how are you feeling? Um, tell, how, how are you feeling after our session? 
and teaching them all these like coping tools and really a lot of psychoeducation too about what is trauma and how that impacts your body, how that can impact their memory um, and, and stress. So really a lot of psychoeducation in the beginning, like what, what is depression, what is anxiety, what, what is trauma? So a lot of that, um, and then maybe a lot of handholding too, teaching them how to talk to doctors. How will that look like? And teaching them to advocate for themselves. I think that's a key thing because they've been silenced um, for, for so long. They've been just kind of their head down. So building that confidence and that really empowerment. Um, and, and, and I love to, I think one of the key takeaways, um, I know Annalisa here brought, wrote a book about human trafficking, um, is talk, 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 talking to them like a survivor because some of them identify them as a human trafficking victim. But I think changing the language of like, oh, you, you survived that and really highlighting to their, their strength and resilience. Like some of them were, were homeless, sleeping in cars um, or couch surfing. So highlighting their resilience. So you're so resourceful doing that. You still keep going. Um, so really a lot of positive affirmation too. Um, and checking with them constantly too, and, and being okay too, because most of my clients are caregivers too. So sometimes their work can interfere with our session. So being understanding of that too. Yeah, Annalisa, maybe you can talk about what, what Andrea just talked about in terms of positive affirmations. And, you know, even when I went to therapy and I, and I thought therapy was like initially for weak people. I mean, it was, it was just a horrible, but it was how I was brought mm -hmm. up. I'm Korean American. Yeah. I'm, I'm a child of immigrants, you know, like positive affirmation is not something I got on a regular basis. And after something very shameful happened to me, shame, right. It's another big thing that we all share in Asian cultures. Um, when a therapist sat me down and said, you're a survivor. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? I just got victimized by this and this and this. And so I had a really hard time transitioning mm -hmm. my thought process from victim to survivor. And in some ways I still consider myself, I mean, I was victimized, right? But it took time for me to understand that I needed to under, like I needed to acknowledge that I survived something and therapists have been so wonderful in, in teaching me about that. So Annalisa, can you kind of tell me about that aspect of you know trauma and surviving as well? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think like an important thing to remember about trauma is that it, you know, there is no straight line um, from experience to um, survival to healing. I mean, I, I really wish there was, we'd, you know, we always, social workers always say we'd put ourselves out of a job and that would be fantastic. Um, but um, it, I, I do think there's certain ways that we could frame, you know, and, um, you know, it would be, you know, um, part of that reframing is a reframing also of what we consider like traditional cultural values. And, and, you know, there's, there's, I think like we've already talked about like collectivism and shame and, and these ideas that I think across the board are pretty similar in many Asian American and Asian Pacific Islander cultures. Um, I, I think the, you know, the fear, right, that Andrea mentioned, like she really stresses confidentiality. And I think that that is because there is a fear because also many Asian cultures are really gossipy. And, you know, and, and you know, so, you know, this, this whole thing is like, we often talk about, we often demonize our culture. You know, we often say like, oh, it's because this is like, 
this old AAPI way of thinking, but you know, what if we took these cultural specifics or these supposed cultural values and we reframe those and we work with those? And that's what I really try to do. Um, you know, whether I'm working with an individual or with a group or even a whole community, is say, hey, like um, there is a lot of um, power, for example, like even in something like gossip, one of my favorite examples, this is in the domestic violence world, uh, but, you know, but, you know, can also be used as an example here is there was like a perpetrator in a village and there was no law enforcement or law enforcement wasn't doing anything. And so these grandmothers in the village started this rumor chain. And every time the guy would walk by, they, you know, every time the perpetrator would walk by, there would be all this whispering and all these rumors. And then his female relatives, you know, got wind of it. And, and so there was this external social pressure and this, you know, then supposed horrible aspect of the culture now becomes like a tool of empowerment, right? Um, you know, I've worked with like so many, vict you know, victims and survivors who've just had so much shame. And I've said, what do you think the shame is? Like, who should be more ashamed, you or that person that trafficked you? What do you think their level of shame is? I mean, and of course, this is a very simplistic example, and it's it's much more complex than that. But being able to turn around those thoughts and and you know slowly working with kind of that those cognitive changes and and a lot of these evidence based practices that that Andrea was was sharing, um, and I think like one of the you know there's a question that Andy had like what you know is um, most helpful things about engaging in therapy. I, I think for me, when I've been in formal or informal therapy with survivors, part of it is just the rebuilding of their humanity and just acknowledging like their dignity as a person because they have been um, you know, in situations where they've had no control, no power, no like, you know, I was saying before, like sometimes like the basicness of being a person has been taken away from them. And so I think that that is, is really important, even if we don't agree, you know? And so I think that that power, like to give them some power, like, you know, I've had so many survivors who are like, and this is why it's really important not to conflate survivorship with a case or a legal case or prosecution and one of the best things that the Trafficking Victim Persons Act did was it divorced those two processes because before you couldn't get a T visa or a, um, or a U visa unless you're cooperating with, you know, with law enforcement. And Andrea, correct me if I'm wrong, but now there's certain leniencies around around that so that, you know, people feel comfortable like not being put into another coercive situation. Right. We hear a lot about rescues. I hate I hate rescues. I have to just say like the organizations that rescue, because when you rescue someone that is like also doing something where you are not you're not in 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 collaboration with them, you're not in community with them. You know, obviously a five year old girl needs to be rescued. Right. But a 25 year old person that's being trafficked and and that has the like ability to leave you can't just pluck them out of their situation into another situation that they don't know or understand or want to be in. And so I think, you know, that being able to, you know, give that dignity to someone is, is the first step. Yeah. And um, Andy, in, in response to your question, if I can add, you know, what's the most helpful thing about engaging in therapy for me personally, it was that you had someone on your side, like who believed in you and who like, like, 
like, because with family members, sometimes there could be that added layer of shame, you know, in my case of like, how could you or like, why did you put yourself in that situation or that kind of stuff that brings blame back on me. And so I felt like this therapist was really good about just letting me know the priority was they're on my side. And they're, they're like, their number one goal is to let me know that I am that, that I am in a, in a good place and that they're helping me get to the, so it was just, I mean, it was just that concept of having somebody to give you hope, you know? So that, that was very important to me. And, you know, when, as we're wrapping up, I want to talk about ways that we can help, um, you know, people join the session for the cultural responsiveness aspect of it and, and wanted to learn about specifically the AAPI culture and, and, you know, what, what kind of advocacy, you know, uh, could take place, what kind of support can take place to help those in uh, these specific communities. So um, Andrea or Annalisa, who wants to start? Like, what are some ways that, that we can help survivors of human trafficking? Yeah, I think for me, it's just really raising awareness with it, because again, a lot of people don't know that they're being trafficked, um, and especially the labor trafficking ones, and connecting them to, to resources um, and also being in those spaces in the community, I, I was in a conference before and making sure there's space for them. Is there a, can, is there a Tagalog clinician um, who can provide this workshop for them? So I think there's that big need too. Um, and, and really making sure too that, um, that you have trauma-informed um, practices um, out there too. Um, really that, that self-awareness too, like helping people with that safety um, trustworthiness, peer support, and really collaborating with these victims, like asking them, what, what do you want to work on? What, what do you need um, right now? Even the most basic needs, such as food, starting where, where they're at. Um, I think uh, I get asked this question all the time, so I'm going to try to drill it down to three things. Um, so one, I cannot say enough what Andrea started with also, which is raise awareness, learn, learn, learn. I, I am constantly reading always on, you know, the, um, always on the internet, trying to look at what's happening. Um, there's so much that we don't know. Like, I always feel like for everything we learn, like there's 10 other things. And also remember like perpetrator, if we think we are moving fast to provide services, we are not moving faster than perpetrators who are trying to, you know, make money off of human beings. And again, like we can, I cannot like say how important it is to understand that because they, for, you know, I just did this project um, the sex trafficking project um, around the Super Bowl, and we had like MIT trained coders on our side, and traffickers were still moving a smidge faster than us, you know. And so I think that uh, that's important is to understand like there's two sides, and so we that's why we constantly have to educate ourselves. Um, I think another way that we could help um, is to put that education into practice. So there's this bridge, right, between like, oh, we know this, but what do we do with it? You know, like, this is great, this webinar, but what do we do with this information? And, and so I think that, you know, being able to learn things and then put it into practice is really important. You know, I don't expect anybody, again, like I'm not about the rescue. So, but, you know, 
certainly understanding like what is the human trafficking hotline um, if you're checking into a hotel and there's somebody checking in next to you like that uh, uh, maybe like usually like an older gentleman and maybe like a really young um, kid that they where they don't look like they're connected where maybe that uh, young person is not dressed appropriately um, you know say something you know and I know that sounds like really like elementary but you know, to be brave enough to say something, maybe not necessarily to those people, but you know, to that's why the hotlines are there is to make a call. Or as more and more industries get trained, like the hospitality industry, say something to the receptionist, you know, like, hey, those people that you just checked in, did you think that was a little sketchy? And I know, you know, there's all of these instances where we say we don't want to profile people, but you know, and and, you know, this is hard, but again, we're all intersectional. And to me, I always will side and err on the side of, you know, protecting um, a possible, um, you know, victim of trafficking, uh, if especially if I think that there's something sketchy happening. And again, that goes back to, you know, being aware then, like, what are those signs and, and, and things like that. And then I think that the last thing, you know, that I want to say around, like, how we can help is to support organizations um, that are doing this really, really important work. And, you know, a lot of times we think we're just like an individual and we can't help, but, you know, the organizations that Andrea mentioned, there's so many other organizations in Los Angeles, they can really benefit from everything from like donations, which we we commonly think of as the, the biggest thing, but also like time. Um, a lot of the work that the successful work that is done with survivors requires intensive case management. And, you know, like even just a little bit of respite, like remembering again, also the caseworkers and the service providers, they also like need a little bit of respite. And so if the more that we could be a village that helps, you know, create this resilience, I think the better. Great. You shared some great tangible tips for, for attendees to take back. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of if there's something you want them to take with them, like a like one thing they can remember? So now I know when I go to a hotel and I'm going to be extra aware of my surroundings and say something instead of just gossiping it about, about it to my husband or something, you know? And so is there anything else that you want to share? Go ahead. Um. I just want to answer a quick question that was just DM'd to me about um, what's the percentage of victims that fall back into sex trafficking. And I want to say this number, we, we, we don't know like clear percentages, but we do know that very similar to um, victims of inter of IPV, intimate partner violence, it takes about six or seven times for a vic for a sex trafficking um, victim to get out of the life. Um, and so there is like kind of this recidivism back in. And that's what I mean about like not being able to, I mean, you gotta kind of stand with people even when they're making good decisions, bad, bad decisions. And if they go back, they have to still know like you're gonna be there every single time they try to get out. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that that's really important. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I just want to thank everybody for their interest. And, and I also want to thank everybody, you know, this kind of maybe the one last thing I want to say is I, I love events like this because um, I think that there is a tendency to say, you know, sex trafficking 
labor trafficking could happen to anyone. Yes, it can happen to anyone. But as Andrea shared with you earlier when she gave her statistics about where it's happening is it is happening, you know, to the AAPI community at unprecedented and the most heightened rates. And as a community, we can't make that nation blind or colorblind, like we have a vested interest and stake in this. And I never, ever want to downplay the urgency that belongs to our community. Um, so I, I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah. And maybe for me, I think the more important thing as a clinician is really take care of yourself because this is a lot of work, a lot of trauma processing, a lot of clients coming with depression and anxiety. So it's re really crucial as a clinician that you take your breaks, take some time off, um, and be an advocate for yourself too. Like boss, I can't take any more trafficking victims yeah. right now because I'm at max capacity because it can be really draining. It can be tough yeah. at times. And also ask for help too. When you're struggling with the case, really do consultation. And I think the crucial thing too is really set boundaries with your client and your work too. Mm -hmm. um, you can't help everyone. You can only do so much to help them. And sometimes you're limited too. So, so just keeping that in mind. Thank you yeah. both. And, you know, we have a couple of minutes. If anyone wants to write a chat question, we can try to address it in the last two minutes. We do have a hard stop at 11, but I do want to thank everyone for being here. And I think you have our information for when you're joining the session. So if you wanted to follow up, you're welcome to do that. And I would say as a last thing, you know, I was a volunteer after I became a survivor um, at a domestic violence, um, you know, advocacy group. And I, knowing Korean, um, and, and, you know, Andrea said she's one of the few Filipinas who can speak Tagalog. And for me to be able to speak Korean, you know, I never thought that was a blessing until really when it came to this scenario. And I'm like, wow, I can help translate documents, really simple things about when survivors go to the doctor and say, I'm hurting here. Or, I'm, you know, just like, so if you know a different language or, you know, someone that does and has a heart to want to help, then that means a lot. It may seem like not a big deal to you, but it like to people that, you know, can use that that piece of paper when they go to the doctor or something, it means a lot. So, you know, it's, it's something that I've noticed through my own personal journey that, you know, I'm, I'm learning to use my, my Asian background and my abilities, especially in language, to be able to help in that way. So thank you everyone for joining again. Bye everyone. Bye everyone, thank you.